0: This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. I first met Senator Sarah Elfrith outside of a budget and taxation hearing to discuss an opportunity to save one of Annapolis's last standing waterman's cottages that was imminently threatened by rising sea levels. Since then, we've collaborated on a variety of efforts, and her work on climate resiliency has been nationally recognized. Saving places often means getting involved in crafting policy, which is why I knew we had to bring Senator Sarah Elfrith to PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we're really excited to be joined by our first elected official on Preserve Cast, State Senator Sarah Elfrith, um, and we're going to be talking to Senator Elfrith all about her work, particularly in the intersection of resiliency and historic places, um, and some of the innovative things that she's done in the Maryland General Assembly since her election. But first and foremost, like we do with everyone else, we like to get to know a little bit about the person that we're talking to. So. Um, Sarah, if you don't mind us calling it, I'll calling you that or Senator Elfrith here. Um, Where did you grow up and when did you first think about running for elected office?
1: Okay, well, I grew up outside of Philadelphia uh, in a small town in New Jersey. And Nick, I'm not sure if you and I have ever talked about this, but uh, my family came over from England in about 1693 and landed in Philadelphia. They were Quakers. And soon after, settled on a, a small street, an alley in Philadelphia that was then named for my family, Elfris Alley uh, in Old City. And it's now the um, the oldest continuously residential street in the nation. Uh, so I grew up very close to that, visiting very often. Uh, my father's a history buff, so I grew up going to to. Uh, sites for, from battlefields in the revolution to Pensbury Manor, um, William Penn's original house. I kind of grew up around around history and with a deep love of preservation. So it's kind of in my family, kind of in my blood.
0: That's pretty cool. And I, I don't think I knew the Elfrith's Alley connection, although I'm familiar with Elfrith's Alley and was curious if there was a connection because it's a unique oh, yeah. last name. So, yeah. Um, so, you grow up sort of immersed in history. um you grow up in New Jersey. How do you end up in Maryland? What's your first job in the sort of this policy legislative arena that you are now so immersed in?
1: yeah well, i I even though I was raised with a deep love of history and a deep love of nature and the environment, I did not come from a political family at all. I, I didn't even come from a family that was like involved in any in any way very civilian family. So how I got here here is kind of an anomaly. It's hard to think back and, and recognize the the watershed moment. Uh, but how I got to Maryland was I was very fortunate to be given a scholarship to Towson University's Honors College. So I um, came from a family that could help a little bit with college, but but uh, the, the burden was really going to be on me. And so I was very fortunate to receive a scholarship, and that's what brought me to Maryland. And then very soon uh, into my freshman year, I. Uh, got involved with the student government association, and we have our had our annual lobbying day called Tiger Pride Day in Annapolis. And I got on the bus from Towson and came down to Annapolis, and just was in awe of how beautiful the the city of Annapolis is, our state capital, our state house, um, very reminiscent of Philadelphia and Elfreth's Alley. So maybe that was a a, a kindred sense of home, uh, but but just fell in love with with the city, and uh, got. Continue to stay involved uh, from a student advocacy standpoint, testified on legislation, got, uh, got beaten up in a committee a little bit by a former uh, state senator who might be in Congress now on a voter rights issue. Um, but it really made me fall in love with the idea that as, as citizens, we can participate, um, take the day off of class or the day off of school and come down and advocate for the things that we care deeply about. So really fell in love with that as well. Um, And then my senior year in college, I was fortunate enough to be appointed by Governor O'Malley to serve on the University System of Maryland's Board of Regents. So got very involved in higher education policy um, traveled across the state to every university, worked with the university presidents, students, and had an absolute ball of a time. My my senior year is very unique. Senior year um, didn't didn't have as much fun as probably my my peers, but I certainly learned a lot and grew a lot professionally. And still count those members of the board of regents as dear friends. Um, so that was really my first. wasn't paid for it, but I would say my first um, professional foray into politics. And so now
0: you represent what people would think of traditionally as, as Annapolis. I mean, App- Annapolis is sort of a, a larger area now than just the the historic district, but your district encompasses that historic area and, and other portions, of course. For people who are listening, and we have listeners all across the country, um, talk to us about your district. What area do you represent now? Um sort of the history, the geography, the the demographics, and then we'll talk about maybe sort of the climate challenges that they face.
1: Yeah. So I like to joke that my district is one big critical area uh, for folks in Maryland. No, our critical area laws is things that touch the water. I represent uh, the state capital, the city of Annapolis. I am known in the Senate because we have rules that say you can't use our names in the Senate. You have to say the senator from the 25th district or the senator from Baltimore City. I have the coolest title, which is uh, the senator from the capital city. So I represent the capital city, uh, the suburbs. I have a little bit of the Broadneck Peninsula, and then I have all South County. So from a history perspective, hard-pressed, uh, maybe maybe St. Mary's County could give us a run for our money, but an incredibly vibrant um, uh, sense of history in the city of annapolis and and in south county um we have the four rivers heritage area is it is almost entirely in my district we have places like uh galesville uh we have um uh, you know shady side and, and deal and the and the rich maritime history of my entire district that not just from boat building and and oystering and all the watermen, um, but a, just a, a rich history. And I have a lot of farmland as well. So the, you know, the t- tagline for Maryland is that we are um, the nation in miniature. And I like to believe my district's kind of Maryland in miniature. I have a very urban component, lots of suburbs, and then I have a lot of rural as well. So it's a very dynamic district. Um, but as you mentioned, we uh, touch a lot of water. And so we are particularly vulnerable to a changing climate, to sea level rise, to sunny day nuisance flooding. All of that really threatens, of course, our historic structures, which we're on here to talk about today, but also our quality of life um, um, from an emergency management perspective. It's also my district's the district of peninsulas. So when you, you know one street is shut down because of flooding, The rest of the peninsula will get significantly backed up for hours on end, you know, which can pose a real public safety challenge. Um, And then, of course, uh, because the good the good news about being on the water is that my constituents care very deeply about the environment. There are 47 Senate districts in Maryland. My district is the only one where the environment polls as the number one issue consistently because it's literally in our backyard and we care deeply about it. And I, I know my constituents feel the same way I do, which is we have a deep obligation to ensuring you know our greatest natural resource, the Chesapeake Bay, is here and protected for generations to come. So that's just a little snippet about my district. But um, I also, I should mention, I live in downtown Annapolis. So I walked to work this morning. There's absolutely nothing better than um, being able to walk uh, to the house every single day and serve the people of my district in Maryland.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fantastic place. It's, it's hard to pick a, a favorite part of Maryland. But certainly, um, you know, in terms of history per square inch, uh, you'd, be, you'd be hard <laughs> to hard to beat um, where, where you live in your district. So you've done some really interesting things. I mean, obviously, um, we mentioned in your bio, you were the the young youngest person ever elected to the Senate. Is that the youngest correct?
1: woman ever elected? I've been beaten by a couple of men, but youngest woman to the, the youngest Senate.
0: woman um, ever elected to Maryland State Senate. And so, it, it you know, in, in some ways, it makes sense that that climate change and the issue of this generation is front and center for you the resiliency work that you've done. Yeah. I mean, obviously the water's edge is right there. And so for some places in this country, climate change, climate resiliency, sea level rise is still, even though we're beginning to really feel it is in some ways theoretical, but it happens every day in, or not every day, but it happens very often in Annapolis and it's ever present. So let's drill into this resiliency authority and this bonding ability and and Mm -hmm. where does the idea come from and what is it going to do and what could the impacts be or what have they been i think people will be really interested around the country in this concept
1: absolutely and and i'll kind of i'll back up just a smidge um so i i also very very cool fun fact is i hold what was once charles carroll's senate seat so signer to the declaration was a Maryland Senator or U S Senator had to choose between both and chose to go back to the Maryland Senate. I like to believe it's because he could, t- he too could walk, uh, from his house to the state house, but I have his, I have his Senate seat. And when you think about, um, the Carroll house, when you think about his property that is right along spa Creek and in, in downtown Annapolis, you know, our, our water's edge has changed significantly since Charles Carroll was in the state Senate. And this is the um, challenge. You know, we have a lot of challenges. <laughs> Believe me, education funding, you know, criminal justice reform, climate change. We have a whole lot of challenges. Um, but this, to my district, is, is chief among them. It is how do we protect our historic fabric, our small businesses, our homes from a sea that is rising? Um, regardless of how you feel about the causes of that, no one can deny that the seas are rising and swallowing up parts of Annapolis, but also parts of Shadyside, parts of Deal all throughout my district, incredibly vulnerable. So I teach, um, I teach, I'm an adjunct professor at Towson University and I teach public policy and I try to get my students to really drill down into the problems, the policy problems we have, and it's from there that we can we can recognize a policy solution. Now when it comes to the need to build a resilient infrastructure, Part of the policy problem is that it is an incredibly expensive undertaking. Now, we're talking about, in this specific circumstance, the city of Annapolis's city dock, one piece of a city that's one piece of a county that's very vulnerable, that project is going to cost upwards of $50 million. Now, I serve on the budget committee, and I got to tell you, $50 million is not something You know, the the state necessarily has handy, much less a municipality the size of Annapolis has, you know, sitting in the bank account ready to deploy for this infrastructure project. And they don't have the debt capacity um, to take on the additional debt to build this incredibly important and urgent project. So recognizing that that was a policy challenge, we got together with some very smart financing experts out of the University of Maryland, a gentleman named Dan Neese who is kicking around this idea of well we need to treat it separate and apart from you know traditional infrastructure projects mostly because of the urgency we cannot wait 10 20 years until we've saved enough money to build this project so uh thus was born the resilience authority legislation that at the state level we passed a bill in 2020 which seems like a decade ago at this point um, to enable municipalities, counties, or in combination, a a municipality and county can form a resilience authority that separate and apart from that government can uh, bond funding to pay for these major infrastructure projects. And there's a couple, you know, budget technical things we had to do, uh, for instance, allow certain counties uh, don't have the ability to, to, uh, dedicate general fund revenue towards something. So we, with a stroke of, stroke of the pen at the state level, enabled them to be able to set up a revenue generator to pay off these debts. So that was, that was something we were able to help with at the state level. Uh, The bill passed in 2020. Uh, It was intended to help places like the city of Annapolis, places like Ellicott City that's experienced 2,000-year storms in, in a number of years, um, and, uh, and significant history of El- in Ellicott city that needs protecting. It was designed to help Baltimore city that again, historic cultural importance in seeing significant, uh, uh, sunny day nuisance flooding there, um, to help uh, on the Eastern shore you know, Dorchester County is is probably the next, frankly, to go in terms of a rising sea eating up farmland. So we we wanted to make it flexible enough to work for different municipalities or different counties, um, but still grant them the ability to actually fund these major infrastructure projects that are meant to create a more resilient community. So even though we built it you know, with greedy self-interest my district in mind, um, we were we were beat to the punch or the, to the chase by Charles County that formed its resilience authority before we did here in Annapolis and has hit the ground running with various resilience projects across Charles County. So really cool to see it being used uh, elsewhere. Uh, but here the city council and the county council, the uh, legislation post, uh, passed in both of those Chambers, So they are just now beginning to stand up by resilience authority that will be the vehicle for this major first of what will need to be many resilience projects in, in Annapolis.
0: Yeah, I think it's just it's something it's one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on is because, you know, it, the work that you do in the General Assembly is is interesting enough. But I think that this holds a lot of potential for Not only preservationists, but anyone interested in trying to figure out how to finance the resiliency work that needs to happen all across the country. Um, And so it's it has impact here in Maryland. But this is a story that everyone across the country in the preservation community needs to know about. Um, and, and needs to follow what what you've done on this. Um, and is there are they going to track the impacts? I feel like that's a big part of this. It, it the only the only worry I have is that it's so disparate because it's happening at the local level. I hope that there's a way for them for the state in some way to track the impact so people can see what's being funded with this um, because it's just such an important you know, way in which we're kind of pushing back and, and, and trying to have an impact here.
1: Absolutely. Well, we have some, some strong reporting language in there because we did want to make sure that we are, the General Assembly and the governor's office are kept up to speed on what's going on uh, locally. Um, I think that, I couldn't agree more though, we, this is a, a crisis that requires greater attention and organization from the state level. My colleague, Senator Katie Hester, out of out of Howard and Carroll counties has a bill to create a chief resilience officer um, that would report, you know, think about a czar. Resilience touches so many various different state departments, natural resources, environment, community and housing. Um, and really, this crisis it, it long ago has risen um in importance of that i believe we should have a chief resilience officer coordinating agencies mema emergency management um and reporting directly to the governor and and theoretically you know once we get that bill passed and we may have a new governor in in the in the state house in 2023 i foresee a much more centralized focus on this very important issue so that is um TBD, but it's on the horizon.
0: So maybe this is a good place to take a quick break, come right back and then talk about people who want to get engaged in in policy creation and advocacy and hear from a legislator about what works um, when making an argument in front of them. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, And follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we're joined by Maryland State Senator Sarah Alfrith, the youngest woman ever elected to Maryland General Assembly, who's been working tirelessly on a variety of different issues confronting her district and the state of Maryland. Particularly, we've been talking about resiliency. Um, but I'm curious, from your perspective, having now been an advocate, you talked about being an advocate as a student, and then um, you had a, you know, a career doing that, working um, on behalf of some environmental organizations as well. Um, But now sitting on the other side of the dais and hearing the arguments being made, what's the best way to get a legislator's attention? Like if somebody is listening and they're trying to position preservation or resiliency or something like this. And you even said there's so many different issues, criminal justice reform, affordable housing, environment, education. How do they position their issue as a priority in front of a legislator, what gets your attention?
1: Oh gosh, well, this is another thing I teach in my public policy and advocacy seminar. Um, and actually, next next week we are focusing on on advocacy strategies. So there's a whole lot of, of tips I would give to people. Uh, but let me let me start with appreciating that uh, because we are a citizen legislature. We are theoretically part-time and paid part-time. I, I personally choose to spend um, anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week uh, focused on the Senate. Uh, but recognizing that we are human beings with very large districts and very small, small but hardworking staff. So we're not Congress. We do not have 10 staff people each. We are you know, very focused on serving our constituents. And particularly, and we're all exhausted, existentially exhausted over this last year and a half with COVID, but um, our offices have been um, working nonstop. So just appreciating that we have a lot of constituent services uh, to deal with. We have um, you know, 2,500 bills introduced every legislative session. So our focus is everywhere all at once, and we all have to know a little bit about every policy area. Which means that we don't necessarily have the ability to drill down into, into policy, to be policy experts on any given thing. Now, we all have kind of our, our different things. I work a lot on environmental issues, um, arts issues, uh, women and children's issues, but I can't necessarily be the expert on every policy area. So I think first understanding, understanding that and finding the appropriate legislator who cares deeply about whatever you care about. Um, is is really important. Also checking where you live. Um, I am a very open legislator. I will meet with absolutely anybody across the state, across the country. At the same time, I do give priority and preference to my constituents. I'm here to serve 130,000 people in Anne Arundel County, and they have my attention first and foremost. So understanding who your legislators are, um, working with them in concert with them, um, being solutions oriented. Uh, we've mentioned uh, there's a lot of a lot of things on fire these days. So uh, an advocate who comes to me with, you know, written specific thoughtful policy solutions to a policy challenge, will get my attention any day of the week because we need partners here. We need we cannot do it alone. We need people who are going to come to us um, having thought through a, pro- a problem, thought through the stakeholders who care about that t- policy problem, um, and and worked towards meaningful solutions. So that's always very helpful when we're given, you know, specific policy solutions to, to address address a challenge. Um, on the advocacy side, if, if folks might not necessarily have time or capacity to to do, to do that solutions-oriented work, but you still want your voice heard, um, focus on your legislators. Again, we get emails from and phone calls from folks across the state, but my office you know, has to triage and give preference to the people I represent. So, try not to uh, advocate to legislators who don't represent you um, because they're focused on their own districts. Always, always, always. You know, I think there's a hierarchy of advocacy strategy here. Right, um, requesting the meeting and understanding a fifteen minute meeting is is. As, as much as we might have capacity for, particularly during session. But that meeting is, is gold. That's the highest level of advocacy. I think a phone call is next. Um, a, personal, a personalized email or letter is next. Um, but a stock, you know, click your name or sign up your name to send an email here um, is, is probably the least effective or, and appreciated form of advocacy. Um, advocacy on social media is not particularly helpful. We now have about 20 different ways you can contact your legislator and we try very hard to, um, to track all of that. So we know who's, who's talking to us, if they've been responded to really difficult to track, uh, communication over social media. So just sitting and tagging your legislator on a post is not particularly helpful to us because, uh especially on our personal pages because it's hard for us to always respond to that so uh, requesting that meeting or and then you know co- personally calling personally emailing or sending a letter those are the the i think the correct ways of effectively advocating for something that you care about
0: so obviously you're about to teach a, uh, a seminar on this because you had like the perfect answer for that. <laughs> and um, I guess if people really enjoyed that answer, they could always sign up to uh, to audit or even take your class for that matter. Um, so <laughs> this is this is a good a, a good advertisement for um, for <laughs> for your your teaching. So um, a quick follow up to that. You know, I think one of the things that's really frustrating for advocates is to see a good bill die. I mean, mm. we've been at it long enough at Preservation Maryland that I always feel like any good idea is going to take like two or three sessions for actually to, to get across the finish line sometimes, unless it's like mm-hmm. something super priority. Why do some good bills fail and others succeed? What, what is that?
1: Uh, it's, that's a tough one. Um, we have our own strategy in my office. I have an incredible staff and uh, we start working on bills, you know, June, July, for, for January and, uh, try to get all the stakeholders together before session. And, and other, another point I'll make in my class next week is, you know, if, if you start a bill in January, you know, kiss it goodbye, it's, it's just not an appropriate enough time to gather all the stakeholders and work through the challenges and make the necessary compromises to get that bill through. So starting very early is, is important. Um, we are very uh, focused on tracking our legislation here in my office. So we have a, we have a very fancy spreadsheet. And any given moment of a day, During the legislative session, I can tell you where every single one of my bills is sitting. Is it in committee? Is it on a voting list? I can tell you where the cross file is sitting and what we need to do to get those bills moving. So having a bill sponsor who uh, works their bills, former Senate President Mike Miller would always lecture us from the rostrum of work your bill, work your bill, work your bill. Um, Nothing passes because it's a good idea. Right. I mean, It might be the best idea in the world, but if you do not have a bill sponsor and and the advocacy groups working that bill, pushing that bill forward, building consensus, checking in with every member of that committee in advance of the hearing and after the hearing and all of that, uh, it just takes a tremendous amount of work to get that idea through. Um... So sometimes you can get big things through in the first year if the stars are aligning and, and you've worked out the, the kinks of it and you've, you have the right bill sponsor and a great advocacy community behind you. And sometimes, you know, the structure of our government, I also teach introduction to political science and the structure of our government, um, you know, the, the various divisions and the separations of powers in the, in the House and the Senate and our process itself um, is supposed to lend itself to incrementalism. And I know that's very frustrating. It's very frustrating for my students who are young and idealistic and want to see immediate change. It's frustrating for me as a legislator who sees a lot of problems out there and wants to solve them. But our system was meant to make incremental changes. And so understanding what is a win? If this is a really big bill and it might take two or three years, what is the win in your first session? Is it a great PR strategy where you get advocates from across the state sending letters to the editor in and uh, and building a grassroots support system in various parts of the state, particularly in the parts of the state where maybe, just maybe, uh, the chair of the presiding committee the bill is going to resides in, so that that committee chair feels the, the grassroots energy in his or her own district. And um, that, that's incredibly important, probably something I should have mentioned before, but um, We really want to, we want to feel and hear from the people we represent. And so centering my constituents to advocate to me, um, will get you a lot farther than if I hear from folks, you know, various across, from various places across the state, I want to know that my, my district cares about, you have to make it relevant to that legislator. Um, so that's very important. So is that first year a great hearing? where you have a, an expert panel, and you've curated the questions, maybe with some members in advance, and maybe the bill doesn't make it out of the committee, but you, you had a good first, first year. Um, is the second year goal to get it out of that committee and maybe through one chamber, the House or the Senate, that's a win. And then the next year, you're building off of that momentum. So understanding that, just because a bill doesn't pass in its first year, are you able to keep that ball moving? um, for, for years following. It's a long answer to your very simple question.
0: Well, and it's a, it's a complex thing. And I I like the idea that, um, bills don't pass just because they're good ideas. Um, we, we just did another interview, um, a couple weeks ago with folks advocating for historic tax credit issues at the federal level. And, and that's, that's the same thing just because it's a good idea. doesn't mean it's going to pass. And I like the idea of working the bill, not only as a legislator, but also as an advocate. So there's a a lot of, lot of gems in there.
1: Um, actually, Nick, can can I add one more thing just because it was the best advocacy strategy I ever heard. Um, Is it's not your job as an advocate to change a legislator's mind, right? It is your job to create the circumstances around which they can change their mind. So, who in their district do they listen to? How many folks from their district can you get to talk to them? And that that's that culture that that shift that that circumstance under which I can change my mind that's what's gonna that's gonna shift my perspective here, not just because you're trying to convince me of something I need to be convinced. I need to be, be convinced that my district cares about that as well.
0: Yeah. And I think centering the district is something we're hearing over and over again. And, and that's important. What's next on the resiliency policy front for you? you? You mentioned the chief resiliency officer, obviously you're running for re-election, but, <laughs> but what are you hoping to accomplish if re-elected?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, a, a whole lot. Um, you know, seeing our resilience authority in action, uh, State legislatures, in particular, are kind of laboratories where we are testing and trying new creative policy solutions. And you know, we can write a bill and get it passed in its first year, and and then it gets implemented, and we see, ah, oh, maybe we should have done this differently. And you know, there's nothing wrong with having to go back to the drawing board. So, so really, seeing the resilience authority in action is going to help me determine what what else uh, do they need to be successful. So, so that's something. Um, Certainly continuing your and my work on the Burtis House, which just happens to sit right smack dab in the middle of where this resilience authority will be um, doing its work. But making sure we're preserving Annapolis's unique maritime history um, is very, very important to me and important to my district. Similarly, uh, we've we've been able to be helpful to Thomas Point Lighthouse, which is the last still standing screw pile lighthouse in the Chesapeake Bay. So how are we um, building uh, the state's capacity to support our historic structures and culture? And so um, my my second term dream list is going to be one of them is going to be uh, supporting, uh, finding a way to, to better support. Uh, our maritime history here in Maryland. Now we passed a bill last year, uh, this past session, uh, Delegate Brooke Lehrman and I worked on this, that it is a dedicated capital funding uh, bill for smaller arts and cultural organizations. So uh, if folks are familiar to, to my district in Annapolis, um, ideally that money is gonna go towards a Maryland Hall, which is a converted Annapolis, formerly Annapolis High School that now serves as, as a, the hub of our arts community here. That money could, would ideally be going to a Banneker Douglas Museum, which is the state's um, African American History Museum. So we've done, we've done some of that work and next I would love to tackle our maritime <laughs> history. Um, and then of course, a lot of work we're doing this interim, and, and Nikki've been involved in this, is thinking through the needs to make a historic investment in our state parks. So we are spending this fall um working through the, the challenges to our state parks, the opportunities that we have, um, and how we can make a generational shift, a generational investment in our public green spaces. Uh again, to ensure that that they are world-class and here for generations to come. So that's going to be, that's not quite next term. That is next session that is coming down the pike. And I'm very excited about it.
0: Well, if anyone listening is, was curious about how Senator Elfrith spends between 60 and 80 hours a week (laughs) on this work, um, that answer, uh, probably sums that up because that was just in the arena of preservation, resiliency, you know, history (laughs) that didn't even scratch all the other things. Um, and, uh, and, and you work the bills too, as you said. So, um, there's, there's a reason, um, you've been so successful at this and and it's been so fun to hear from you and kind of pick your brain a little bit about this before you go, probably a really difficult, uh, question for someone who represents the city of Annapolis, but what's your favorite (laughs) historic place or site?
1: Oh gosh, that is a tough one. Um, the Thomas point lighthouse, even though it's, it's difficult to necessarily get out there too often, but that's just such an iconic, iconic, uh, symbol of, maryland's maritime history and culture uh, that you know theoretically depend on how, depending on how far out you know district lines go into the chesapeake bay is in my district and i care very deeply about it and we were able to be be helpful uh, a couple years back to keep it standing which is very important to me um you know i have I have all the homes of the signers of the declaration had homes in, in, Annapolis. Um, so that collection of houses is, is very near and dear to me as well. Um, and we have a rich uh, hist- African-American history in my district that we're just starting to tell that story. It's been um, not given its due and it is essential to understand the history of Annapolis and Anne Arundel County is telling that that black story um, to to more audiences. So I'm excited for what's ahead in terms of making our history more accessible to everybody.
0: Well, it's a a perfect end to a really fun conversation to hear from you and and also a good advertisement for people who are looking to get out and go visit a place to come to Annapolis because there's uh, just an amazing amount of history to see um, from a variety of different periods. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to watching uh, where you head and where your work goes over the next several years and hope to have you back again soon.
1: Of course. Thanks so much, Nick. I appreciate the time.
0: Thanks for listening to Preservecast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Preservecast for even more. Preservecast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.